Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Hi, Ken. Uh, So, you know, we have this running list of fora in which you should not discuss matters regarding which you may be under criminal investigation for, for which you may have even already been indicted. And I think we have a few additional uh, contexts that we are going to add to that list this week. We do. uh, And I'm expecting the question, is it a good idea to go on Brett Baer's show and more or less confess to the thing that you've been indicted for in federal court? Is that a good idea? Well, Josh, I was expecting you to ask, in the interest of consistency and efficient use of time on our show, I've asked Sarah to prepare a stock response uh, <laughs> to insert in post every time you ask this. Sarah? <laughs> yes, that is a goat screaming. Uh, anyway, thank you, Sarah. Uh, we'll be using yeah. that every time. Okay. No, um, Josh, it is a, a terrible idea for someone under federal indictment to go on anybody's show and answer questions about the indictment. It's a particularly bad idea, even if it's a friendly network like Fox, to go on with someone like Brett Baer, who actually has an interest in at least appearing to look like a journalist, and will ask some follow-up questions. I know he's gotten some criticism for the interview for not following up more, but I would say it was a more dogged interview than Trump typically gets, certainly on mm-hmm. that network. Yeah. Uh, and it was it was terrible. It was bad on every level. Uh, he locked himself in to particular stories about how things happened. He arguably, people have been saying, and I don't think it's a huge exaggeration, confessed, saying that he you know, decided not to turn over boxes containing uh, documents because they still had his golf clothes in them, his, his <laughs> pants and shirts and shoes. Yeah. Now, Josh, I've seen Donald Trump's golf clothes, and I can understand why he wouldn't want them to become further a matter of public record, but that's not actually a defense to willful yeah. retaining of secret information. Well, so, I mean, th- that was a follow-up I'm going to ask here. You know, yes, you should not go on Fox News or any other cable news network to do an interview about the matter regarding which you've just been indicted. But if you are going to do that interview and you are asked about the allegations that are raised against you in the indictment, should you confirm the allegations or deny them? I think you should deny them or say that your lawyer won't let you answer. I don't think (laughs) that you should sort of basically agree with them, but offer a justification that is not actually an excuse at law, which is more or less what he did. And he, he... could have said any number of things that would be a defense. He could have said, I always intended to turn over all the documents I thought I had, but there was confusion over which boxes were which. That's perfectly plausible. Uh, any, All these things. But what he said was, I'm really busy. I didn't want to turn them over because it still had some of my stuff in it. And, you know, so I didn't. Uh, and that's not a defense. How does this interface with the way that he might make a defense at trial? Because he's not going to take the stand at trial. So it's not like we're imagining a situation where Donald Trump otherwise might take the stand at his trial and say, well, gee, I didn't, you know, I thought I turned over all the boxes. I got confused. I have so much stuff. Mar-a-Lago is a really big house. I got confused. I meant to comply, blah, blah, blah. And then they show him the transcript and say, but here you said this different thing then. That's not going to happen because he's not going to testify at all. So how does this impact the ability of his defense to raise certain of these defenses? You know, how do they raise the idea that maybe he intended to comply with the subpoena and just got confused if he's not actually going to testify himself? Josh, first of all, I don't think it's 
completely clear that he won't testify. I think it's clear no rational person in his place would testify and no competent criminal defense attorney would want him to and any good attorney would do their utmost to stop him. But I don't think it's perfectly clear that he won't because he's Trump. Uh, well, I mean, we, we did have this civil case where not only did he not testify, he didn't even bother showing up to court. And I realize they're, they're different matters, and this one's a criminal matter. But I think that, you know, Trump's pattern of, of viewing the, the very existence of legal proceedings against him with contempt um, and believing that he can have essentially a political strategy here. I mean, like, my box is how dare they is a complete nonsense legal argument. But as a political argument, I think that carries a fair amount of water with the, the audience that he's speaking to. So I, you know, I think that, you know, if, if he viewed this as the, the fight of his life and the way to win it was to, like, put on the best performance in court, I think he might testify. But I think he thinks this stuff is almost beneath him, even though it could literally result in him going to prison. So I, you know, I, we never know exactly what he will do, but I don't believe he will testify. I think he will accidentally do the smart thing and not testify, but for different reasons than the reasons his lawyers would have him not testify. It's certainly possible. But to circle back and actually answer your question, uh, I think it's still harmful, even if it's not used to impeach his testimony, because it basically lets the prosecutors put on this evidence that shows him more or less admitting elements of the crime, more or less refuting some of the defense theories that his team has floated over time. Uh, it makes it harder for Judge Cannon to tank the case with a straight face. It kind of removes the plausible arguments and uh, it, it just generally increases the strength of the case. Now, I, I want to say that with Trump, a lot of really terrible things wind up being cumulative. So he says so much crazy stuff and so much incriminating stuff that sooner or later you're you're just you know uh, adding more onto a giant pile and and marginally it doesn't make a big difference. I would say though that this interview is probably the worst thing he's done in terms of his public admissions about the case. We've talked a fair amount about attorney-client privilege issues and how that's going to be a key way for Trump's legal team to try to attack the government's case here in the pretrial phase, try to get certain evidence thrown out. And you've also suggested that the problem that could arise there for the government if it gets unfavorable rulings from Judge Cannon is not just the loss of certain documents uh, and, and interview testimony from Evan Corcoran and other attorneys who were interviewed about matters that would otherwise have been privileged, but a, a different federal judge ruled that they could pierce the privilege under the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. That there could be other fruit of the investigation that arose from that that the government would therefore be unable to use. But I assume that public statements Trump makes cannot possibly be fruit of the poison tree there, right? So, I mean, one, one thing that I can imagine happening here is if, if you have Donald Trump go on television and confirm certain things that the government was otherwise going to rely on testimony from people like Evan Corcoran for, then that could, in theory, make that, that otherwise privileged uh, evidence of less importance to the government's case than it, than it ought to be if Trump would just shut up. Sure. I think that's right. Right. When, when the, the, the theory of fruit of the poisonous tree, that some piece of evidence is derivative of a improperly gathered piece of evidence, has its limits. And uh, it can't be too attenuated between the wrongdoing and the piece of evidence. And there can't be like a break and a series of independent decisions that relate to it. So Trump going on TV is like an independent decision that cuts off the chain uh, between the allegedly improper actions 
and the evidence. So if it had been like a confession, they they get a bogus search warrant, they search his house, they interrogate him and he confesses, that might be fruit of the poisonous tree. You know, doing something far later after the indictment talking in public, that's that's not at all fruit of the poisonous tree. But you're right that he's just sort of backstopping what could be weak parts of the case for the government. Another key part of this Brett Baer interview uh, that's gotten a lot of attention is his explanation of what he was doing uh, in that meeting at Bedminster, where there's this the audio recording. He was meeting with the ghostwriters for Mark Meadows' memoir of his time as Donald Trump's uh, White House chief of staff. And he's waving around what appears to be a war plan document from General Mark Milley about how you would invade Iran if you were going to do that. And talking about how, you know, this document is secret and I could have declassified it when I was president, but now I'm not president anymore, so I can't, so it's still secret. Um, And he claims in the Brett Baer interview that there, you know, there was no document. Maybe he made the document up and, you know, he was just holding up press clippings and various other uh, unclassified documents. So this, I mean, in contrast to being a confession, this is the sort of thing that you might expect to be raised as a defense. Um, That, you know, maybe Donald Trump was lying about having classified documents because Donald Trump lies about all sorts of things that he might brag about. And even though he's, you know, he's saying on the tape that he has this war plan that he never really had it. But again, you know, that's, you know, that's not something that they can bring up through his testimony unless they actually put him on the stand at trial. So how would they advance that defense uh, if they were going to try to do that? They might have some other witness who was in the room saying, you know, I looked and I saw that, uh, you know, Mr. Trump was actually holding uh, whatever, uh, a flyer for KFC. Uh, <laughs> they could uh, they could argue the government hasn't actually proven what was in his hand, that no one saw it. But I mean, the whole, you know, he lies all the time is a very unappealing defense. And we actually haven't had them say that. We've we've had them say, like in defamation cases, that he speaks uh, rhetorically and hyperbolically and that sort of thing. But we've never had him say he lies all the time. The other thing, Josh, is that uh, you don't really need that document as a document to prove the case. The significance of that speech, I think, is less as proof that he had that particular document, whatever it is. It's more as proof of willfulness, of his knowledge that he's not allowed to keep secret documents and that he can't declassify them after leaving the presidency and and that there are documents that he didn't declassify. So I, I think that's why the testimony is important. And that it doesn't matter what he's holding. It just matters that he admits these facts about, you know, how he's supposed to treat things. And so we will see, you know, these are some things that we're talking about how the case might shape up once it gets into Eileen Cannon's courtroom. Uh, We got the first order from her. But it looks like mostly a boilerplate order. It sets out an initial trial date for August, but I assume we're not, in fact, going to have a trial in August in that courtroom. It's very unlikely uh, because there's going to be a ton of pretrial motions. As you've suggested, it's probably in his best interest to delay. Uh, This case has more than usual complicated issues, uh, among them how to treat classified documents and the challenge to the attorney-client communications and things like that. Most of that order is boilerplate. Now, there's federal judges in criminal and civil cases have standard orders about things that they want the parties to do in every case. The clerk inputs the particular dates and they issue it. No real thought goes into it. Probably it was set for trial in August because that's what the Speedy Trial Act would require, absent any finding that any of the factors applied for an extension, and the parties haven't yet submitted their thoughts on whether those factors apply. The other thing that was interesting in this order is that it it says the trial will take place 
on that date in Fort Pierce, Florida. Uh, so Eileen Cannon, her duty station is Fort Pierce, which is up in St. Lucie County, quite quite a bit north of Miami as you go up the, the coast there. Uh, she also hears some cases in West Palm Beach. I think we'd sort of been assuming that this was going to be a, a West Palm Beach case because the Mar-a-Lago Club is in, is in Palm Beach. The order suggested that that could be modified later, although I didn't know whether there was significance to that. Should we expect that this trial is going to happen sort of way up in the middle of nowhere there? It's too early to say. And uh, federal courts have some discretion in terms of deciding what courthouse a trial will take place at, particularly when there are factors like security and uh, capacity and things like that. So this is a uh, a truly historic case. It's going to have a unique drain on the resources of whatever courthouse it goes to. And so I would expect the chief judge, uh, while maybe not willing to, in effect, switch judges, which is frowned upon, definitely to make decisions about which courthouse is best able to handle uh, the media circus. And so does that affect what the jury pool is? If the case is tried up in St. Lucie County, which is a significantly redder area of Florida, than Palm Beach County or Miami-Dade County. Uh, does that mean we're getting a jury pool that's from St. Lucie County and that's th- therefore presumably more Republican? So federal jury pools are a little different. Um, they're not drawn from one county the way uh, your jury pools for a typical criminal or civil trial in state court are. They're drawn from the entire district. And so often it involves more travel for the hapless juror who gets picked for a trial. But it will be more than just that county. It may be, on average, more weighted towards that direction of the district, but it's it's going to be drawn from the entire district. So if you live in Miami, you can be forced as a juror to commute 100 miles up to Fort Pierce to sit on a jury in a multi-week trial? In theory, although realistically, you would probably say that you're not able to do that for some reason or other, and you'd wind up quite likely getting kicked off the jury. Okay. So in practice, it would tend to be a jury of people who live relatively close to the courthouse rather than people who live very far away from the courthouse. On average, it's more likely to be closer. However, uh, there are cases where you have people commuting substantial distances on juries. Uh, and an hour, you know, here in, in Los Angeles, where everything is an hour away, it's not unusual <laughs> to have jurors who are going a very substantial distance, even even an hour and a half or more. Yeah. You mentioned uh, classified information as one of the pitfalls in the pretrial phase of this. And the New York Times had an interesting story on this, on the Classified Information Procedures Act, or SIPA. Uh, And so this basically sets out rules about how you handle classified documents if they are important evidence in a criminal case. And that's going to be a significant issue here. You have these 31 documents, um, which are, you know, almost all of them are marked either secret or top secret. Um, And so both the, there's a fair amount of discretion for Judge Cannon to make decisions about exactly how they'll handle those documents. And then it's also reasonably likely that the government might want to immediately appeal some of those decisions that she makes. And that could add significant time to this process. It could. Uh, Although, again, remember one of the things we talked about before about how the government would love to get rid of Judge Cannon is that immediate appeal gives them an opportunity to be before the 11th Circuit. And if she's acting in some nutty way, that may be the opportunity for the circuit to say, you know, maybe we'll send this back to a different judge. That aside, yes, there's a bunch of decisions to be made 
under SIPA, and a lot of it is is governed by what the government is asking for. So the government will be asking for permission for what it's required to turn over, um, how redacted those documents can be, what can be put into evidence publicly, and how redacted those documents can be, under what circumstances the uh, the things they turn over can be held and stored, decisions like that. I told you before, and you were a little skeptical of it, but but I still think that Jack Smith likely chose the documents here with an eye towards it not being catastrophic if a significant amount of them gets revealed publicly. I don't think he chose documents, at least not all documents, where it's going to be terrible for national security if it gets out. So I anticipate, though, that they will be taking advantage of SIPA and they will be, at least with some documents, asking to redact portions of them. So so there's a couple of separate questions here, right? One is about what the government is going to be willing to share with Trump and his legal team, and the other is about what the government is going to be willing to have published for the broad public to view. And so one of the one of the things the Times discusses is that the reason the defense team wants to look through as many of these documents as possible and possibly even related classified documents which have not been charged may not have been in Trump's possession is they want to be able to figure out what the actual sensitivity of the of the information in the documents is and in particular if there's something that's in one of these classified documents and then they can show that there was information in the public domain that was substantially similar that can be a defense at trial because the Espionage Act is not actually specifically about classification levels. Classification levels provide an indication of how sensitive a document is, but it's a, a it's a defense here um, if the information's release would not actually be damaging to national security. And one way you could argue it wouldn't be damaging is if the information was already publicly known. And so I guess I, I, I still... I'm still confused about the thing that we talked about with this early on, which is that if Jack Smith picked documents where the government has a relatively is relatively freely able to share what's in those documents, won't that tend to help them with that defense where they'll be able to say, see, this information was not in fact that especially damaging to national security if it was released? Yes. Although, again, it's, it's there's a difference between it being harmful to national security when it was taken and retained and being harmful now. In addition, there can be documents that are selected because they are easy to redact or suitable uh, for redaction. So sometimes the super sensitive stuff is sort of interwoven in, in all the parts of it. Sometimes you can have a document that says, you know, in the event we elect to use force against Iran, uh, the plan will have the following components. Bang. And then you can redact stuff after that, right? Uh, it being clear enough from the, f- the first uh, what it's about. So, uh, and, and again, the, the the standard, you're right to point out, and this gets confused a lot in stories about this, that it's the Espionage Act it does not have to be classified or top secret. Uh, or anything like that. The, the standards about whether or not, you know, it is defense information that is potentially harmful, and that's a different standard. And you know, I I, I think it's a standard that historically the government has interpreted very broadly. Historically, um, the public and juries have been inclined to uh, interpret pretty broadly. Question is how a jury would feel about that when it's a former president, right? The other thing the Times notes is that there hasn't been Supreme Court litigation over SIPA ever, and that there conceivably could be. I mean, because there are rights that a defendant has about being able to confront accusers and that sort of thing. And sort of when you effectively have a certain amount of secret evidence being brought um, against the defendant, it seems like that's the sort of thing that you might have 
appellate relief about. It is. Defense lawyers have often argued that it's fundamentally unfair for the government to be prosecuting you over a document that you can't see in its entirely in entirety and use in evidence in its entirety. That would normally be a defense pro-civil liberties position. Uh, and, and this is an example of how the, the script gets flipped in, in all these Trump cases, because I think if you took this to the Supreme Court, to a Supreme Court that's sympathetic to Trump, they've got the prospect of basically undermining many decades of a, a traditional stance of being very deferential to national security concerns uh, just to help him uh, in his ongoing, you know, cascade of, of stupid actions. Well, and, I, and I, I don't think we have a Supreme Court that's sympathetic to Trump. I think that when the Supreme Court has been uh, has faced a choice between conservative legal principles and doing something to protect Donald Trump from his legal difficulties, they've chosen conservative legal principles basically every time. I, I think that's that's fair uh, on the at least as to specific cases against Trump. Right. Uh, well, that's what this is. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't I don't see a sign right now that the Supreme Court is going to kind of go radical on national security issues uh, just to help Trump. But I think one of one of the things this drives home is that before you even consider Eileen Cannon sort of misbehaving, a normal judge in a normal position, there would still be quite a bit of, of pretrial motion argument in this case. You could conceivably end up with some sort of dispute with the government, although the, only the government can appeal before trial. The defense will have to wait until after trial if it wants to appeal. So may, I, you are more likely to end up at the appellate court level early with Eileen Cannon. But it's basically that there's all sorts of reasons that this is likely to take quite a long time, even compared to a normal federal criminal trial, both before it goes to trial and then the possibility for appeals after trial. That's right. And it's it's one of the reasons why there are so many opportunities for a federal judge in a criminal case to tank the case that aren't like flamboyant and obvious. There are so many little rulings that help shape the way the case goes that uh, are discretionary calls that, uh, depending on how you call them, can can uh, spell the difference between success or failure. And then that interacts with Donald Trump's general practice of, of trying to slow down litigation. Right. The thing I find Interesting about that strategically, though, for him is that I think, you know, his idea is basically if, if we slow this down, then I can be elected president again um, and I will dismiss the case. He seems more likely to go that way than to try to rush to trial to get an, a, a quick, you know, favorable verdict out of Eileen Cannon, basically, you know, staking his hopes on the idea that she's going to tank the case for him. I think it's likelier that he will delay, delay, delay. But the other the other possibility there is that Biden wins reelection. That gives Democrats four more years on the clock. Uh, for this prosecution and the other investigations. And it also, I mean, who knows, maybe he, maybe he would run for president again in 2028. But it's, it's at least fairly likely that he will be of less political significance to uh, Republicans after, his, after once again losing the presidential election. He might actually lose some of the political levers that he would have available to him if he was going to trial right now. I think that's right. Uh, but again, the interview that we talked about earlier is just emblematic of how he thinks about all these things very differently than we do uh, <laughs> and that a regular person would. So we, you know, he, he may decide that ramping up things in the criminal case is the way to ramp up his base and, and drive votes. Uh, we, we really don't know where it's going to go. Uh, I suspect that he will look for some easy early victories in the criminal case. You might see something like a, a motion to dismiss for outrageous government misconduct, which is a thing. There's a doctrine under which if the government has uh, 
behaves in a way that is truly outrageous and beyond the pale for violation of rights, the court can, in exercise of its supervisory power, just dismiss the case. I think he'll take a shot at that, even though I don't think he has anything approaching a plausible argument for it. I think he'll try relatively early to knock out the attorney-client stuff, which would be something that would derail the case for a long time. I want to talk about uh, a different investigative matter, the January 6th investigation um, that significantly involves uh, the former president and that could conceivably lead to another set of federal indictments against him. But there's a story in the Washington Post um, about the manner in which this investigation proceeded initially and some internal politics disputes within the Department of Justice about whether they should be initially focusing on Donald Trump, I suppose, as a, as a target or subject of that investigation. Um, and instead, they, they took an approach that, that really started with the rioters and moved up a pyramid rather than down it. And there's been some second guessing about whether that was an appropriate strategy. Uh, yeah, th- this article was in the Washington Post was, I thought, really well reported in terms of how the process played out. Um, but it reflected some kind of weird, fundamentally wrong expectations about the Justice Department. This was absolutely an article showing, yeah, this is this is how they would do it. This is how the Justice Department acts. So the people in the article sort of expressing shock uh, that it played out a particular way are, are kind of like, you know, wait, I, I went on stage with this guy named Gallagher and he was hitting watermelons with a hammer. What the fuck? Well, <laughs> you know, well, that's what they do, right? Uh, so the basic idea was that they thought that they should have aggressively pursued specifically Trump from the very beginning of the investigation, almost immediately after uh, January 6th. And instead, they built a base case gathering all the information about what happened on the ground at the Capitol uh, for a good year before they broadened that to start investigating Trump's role in it. And that is very much a Department of Justice way to approach things. Uh, first of all, they have been criticized and stung for the idea that they focused on Trump or his campaign too early and without adequate information uh, on other occasions. And so this was a good way to avoid that. No one could say they rushed into focusing on Trump on January 6th. Uh, they, they laid the groundwork. Second, uh, just the way, like they say, this is the way they do it. They go up the ladder. They start with the small people. They get what they can out of them and they move up. And there's no real incentive to declare him an official subject or target early for one reason, because so he would continue to say things and other people would continue to say things about him. I think the heart of the criticism may be kind of a political one, that they should have realized that, you know, Trump could become president again, that, uh, you know, the control of the House and Senate can change and all these things. And therefore, you need to rush before those political things happen to get him indicted, to, to finish the investigation. But it's not really appropriate for the Department of Justice to think that way. They should be thinking about you know, what methodology do we use to investigate a crime? Do we have enough evidence to prove a crime? Should we charge and not think about, well, strategically, you know, I've got to file these charges before the voters choose someone else as president. That that wouldn't be an, a, an appropriate thing under the principles of federal prosecution for them to consider. Well, I, th- I think the other important thing here is that the, the DOJ specifically exists to investigate crime and not other kinds of wrongdoing. And I think that, you know, immediately in the aftermath of the January 6th riot, it was clear that Trump had engaged in serious wrongdoing. And 
there there was another process that sought accountability for that, which is to say that rather swiftly, the House of Representatives impeached Trump for his actions, and uh, the things that the ha- the House does not have to limit itself to matters that are that are literal crimes; that it doesn't have to be in the federal statute book. And they they impeached him. The Senate chose not to. Uh, not to, I mean, he'd, he'd already left office at the time the Senate was voting, but they chose not to convict him. They chose not to bar him from holding further office. But that's sort of, you know, there's a certain category of wrongdoing by a president where the the primary accountability mechanism lies with the Congress through the impeachment process, and that process was used. The question of whether Trump uh, or people close to him had committed literal crimes associated with the riot itself, I think was less obvious than whether his behavior had been egregious and meriting impeachment and that sort of thing. And as you note, was going to re- rely on building some of that ground up in evidence. There's also sort of, there's there's two related but separate matters to do with post-election activities. One has to do with the efforts to steal the election. The other has to do with the riot. And the riot was really only tangentially a part of the effort to steal the election. It was not one of the more effective components of the strategy to steal the election. And so I think, you know, even if we get to an indictment for Donald Trump eventually on uh, matters related to the election, it's not clear to me that it will necessarily be specifically related to the riot as opposed to being related to other activities related to the certification of electors, pressure brought on various other officials that might not even necessarily literally involve the riot. Absolutely. And and you have to remember, and we've said this many times, that the f- Federal prosecutors, their their competitive advantage is the ability to build a slow, methodical case, to take time doing it, developing it, bringing in witnesses, discovering evidence, that type of thing. So when you're wanting them to do things fast, you're basically saying you want them to squander one of their strengths. The other thing I think about this, uh, Josh, is that this is kind of a recurring theme uh, as you suggest, there are political remedies for some bad things that go wrong. Uh, the federal criminal justice system is not your deus ex machina that comes in and saves and, and remedies fundamental flaws in our democracy. Uh, but people keep looking to it, and they've been looking to it since we started all the president's lawyers in, what, what was that, spring of 2018? Yes. Uh, the, the criminal justice system is not going to rescue you from political problems. And the, And the other thing is that I think it is appropriate for the Department of Justice to have a lot of caution around a theory, and, and this is what the criminal theory would have been in the aftermath of January 6th, is that the, that the former president's political actions, the speech that he made on the ellipse, uh, the things that he asked his supporters to do and to object to and to stand up for, that he committed a crime through his political speech by inducing people to riot or to do other things. Now, it is, it is literally possible to do that. But I, it, it, I think it's appropriate for DOJ to have reluctance about moving in toward a, a, politi- a, a criminal investigation that's going to lead toward the idea that somebody's political speech was, in fact, criminal. Absolutely. Or, or the idea that, you know, normal political interplay and collaborating and scheming to try to get someone elected is criminal. It's, it's right that they're very cautious approaching that because it would be very corrosive to democracy and to freedom if, if that became something that was frequently the subject of criminal investigations. Speaking, by the way, of situations where your primary wrongdoing may not actually be criminal wrongdoing, 
Let's talk about Hunter Biden and whether he got off easy uh, with this deal that's been announced with the U.S. attorney in Delaware. So Hunter Biden was already under criminal investigation for various financial related matters before his father took office. Um, There isn't a special counsel here, but the U.S. attorney in Delaware is a Trump appointee who has been held over, who has been overseeing this investigation the whole way through. Uh, And they have reached a plea agreement where Hunter is going to plead to two misdemeanor tax offenses um, where he uh, uh, failed to pay more than $100,000 of federal tax owed in both 2017 and 2018. And he won't plead to this gun charge, but there will be a diversion where basically, you know, this offense where he falsely claimed that he was not a drug addict when he uh, bought a a firearm, uh, which he then owned for only a couple of weeks, uh, they'll place him in a a diversion program. And if he uh, meets the, the conditions of that program, then they will dismiss that charge. But so it's two misdemeanors. We have news reports saying that the that prosecutors will recommend probation here, although I, I think we want better sourcing on that. And I believe it's the Washington Post had this as, according to people familiar with the negotiations who spoke on the condition of anonymity. So we'll see whether there is, in fact, that recommendation for probation. But is, that, is this getting off quite easy here? This, you know, this investigation has gotten so much attention for so many years involving fairly substantial amounts of money and this likelihood that he'll get off with misdemeanors and no jail time. Uh, I- I think it depends um, on what more we find out when we see the plea agreement and things like that. So like you said, this is a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney making this decision, and that U.S. attorney has emphasized in responses to Congress, which has been nosing around all these investigations, that he's been given carte blanche here. He is out on his own making his own decisions on this. Uh, so part of this is very standard. So when you when you have tax cases. It is not unusual for them to be resolved by a pre-indictment plea deal to this particular charge, uh, Title 26 United States Code 7203, which is a willful failure to file taxes. Um, That's because uh, it fits the bill when you just don't file a tax return. It's also because it's much harder to prove tax evasion, which is the felony charge, the more serious charge. With tax evasion, you have to prove basically some sort of deceit or false statement or or things like that. And if a guy is just, let's be blunt, a a kind of crack addict who's, who's careening around doing all these wild things, it's a little harder to prove that he had this deceitful scheme as opposed to he just wasn't filing taxes. Uh, so uh, that part of the resolution, the misdemeanors pre-indictment, is not remarkable. If there is a recommendation of probation, then that is relatively lenient, I think, uh, because as as I run the very rough calculations uh, based on what it says in those informations, the amount of tax that wasn't paid it was uh, uh, more than 200000 And so Normally, if you pled guilty pre-indictment, that would get you in a range where you might expect to do a few months of jail time. But again, we need more information before you can say that clearly. But probation for a pre-indictment plea uh, to two misdemeanors would certainly not be a unheard of type of recommendation. Finally, as to the gun charge, it's the kind of charge that is almost never made and you really only tend to get it if you're being noticed for something else. So this statute says, basically, uh, you can't possess a gun if you're an unlawful user of or addict of a controlled substance. And I should point out that's going to include abuse of prescription drugs. So some vast number of Americans 
<laughs> fall under this statute. That's some really, really I, I saw a figure like 60 million people in, in any given year abuse an illegal drug or abuse prescription drugs and would not be allowed to have a gun. And I guarantee you a lot of them have guns. And it's very rarely prosecuted either as an unlawful possession, which is what is charged here, or as a false statement to get the gun. And uh, it tends to happen when something else is going on. So on the rare occasions when you see this charge, it's because like there's a task force that's sweeping up all the gang members in a city and they're just looking for any charge they can find on them or they are investigating you for something else and this is all they can find. But it's not typically done. And, you know, if it were typically done, all you would have to do is go identify all the addicts or drug users and then compare it to gun ownership uh, records. Uh, but they don't do that. So the diversion of that, of something that's hardly ever charged, is not particularly remarkable either. So part of how this came to the government's attention is that Hunter published an autobiography in 2021, laying bare aspects of his soul that, you know, I think it might be in everybody's best interest if they had been kept private. But in any case, he described the purchase of this gun while he was amid all of these benders in the autobiography. And he was already under criminal investigation at the time the autobiography was published. So again, Ken, I have to ask you, while you are under federal criminal investigation, should you publish a bearing your soul tell-all autobiography describing your drug use and gun purchases? Josh, I think we're going to have to have a rule of only one goat scream per episode. So (laughs) I'm just going to go with no, uh, you should not. But the key point you made there is while you're under investigation for something else, there's all sorts of autobiographies out there and and confessions on TV and this sort of thing of of people completely out of control doing crazy things. People are in the news all the time who are, you know, both using illegal drugs and have guns. It doesn't result in prosecution. But this is someone who was already very closely under watch and as to whom there is this enormous political pressure. Uh, that we've got to do this right or else there's going to be a parents who are letting the president's son skate. So I, I suspect that if this weren't Hunter Biden, he wouldn't have to do anything with that charge. They wouldn't make him even do diversion. And likely, to be frank, if it weren't Hunter Biden, they wouldn't have found the tax issues. Some incredibly minuscule percentage of Americans get investigated criminally for tax wrongdoing, and it's kind of get struck by lightning, okay? And the people who are more famous are more likely to get struck by lightning. And in fact, there have been, I believe, internal guidelines at different points of time that say that in deciding who to investigate and prosecute, that the person's notoriety is a factor because the deterrent factor will be bigger when you Mm -hmm. prosecute them. Well, but I mean, I think also the, the sense of unfairness that people have here and to take the better version of the criticisms that come from the right around Hunter Biden right. is to say that the business that Hunter Biden was in, where he was receiving income that he was not paying tax on, was a very sleazy influence peddling business where he was going around the world, finding foreign clients who wanted influence over the U.S. government, claiming to have influence, very likely exaggerating the influence that he had over his father, but in any case, trading on his father's name to make income for himself at least creating the impression that he could influence U.S. public policy and that that was what he was being paid for. And that is is very sleazy. 
And sometimes that sort of activity is a crime. It could be, you know, you can have unregistered foreign agent activity, you can have bribery. There are various ways to do that business that are illegal, but not all of them are illegal. Sometimes what you are doing is just very sleazy. And so I think a lot of the assumption of people looking at this investigation of Hunter Biden is that it wasn't merely a tax investigation, that it was an investigation of these business practices that were themselves possibly illegal and that there was, you know, that people were thinking there might be an indictment for matters related to that. And so, I mean, we don't, we don't even have a plea agreement yet. But I guess part of the, the question here about, you know, was this disposition an easy disposition for Hunter Biden or not? The underlying question is, did he commit other crimes? Or is the only criminal activity here besides the gun that he didn't pay tax on the income that he made in this sleazy manner? Well, it would definitely be against Department of Justice policy if they determined that he committed some more serious crime to resolve it by letting him plead to something else less serious. So you're supposed to plead, in theory, to the top count, the most serious crime that um, reasonably describes the conduct, uh, even when it's a pre-indictment plea. So, yeah, it would be a, a gross violation of Department of Justice protocol and rules if they determined, oh, yeah, he violated the law influence peddling, but let's just let him do the tax thing. But I don't see any indication that happens. The only indication is, you know, really political bluster, both in Congress and and by pundits. Most of the time, sleazy influence peddling is not illegal. It's also ridiculously prevalent. You know, uh, you, you see all these uh, spouses of politicians and judges and things like that getting cushy jobs uh, and kids and, you know, serving on boards of directors of things and all that. It's, it's all about connection and influence and that type of thing. It's only illegal when it crosses into actually bribing uh, someone in power. Or if, if it crosses to, you know, unregistered foreign agent activity, or when it crosses to some sort of fraud, like if Biden was promising stuff and not delivering and taking money, then I guess in theory, some of those foreign companies could step up and claim fraud. Uh, but that's not <laughs> what has happened. Yeah. Uh, and, and there is no party, no group of politicians that really wants a robust scheme of prosecuting influence peddling. No party's going to come well out of that. Well, and, it, and it's also, it's hard to write laws that effectively prohibit that sort of activity without sweeping up other political activity that is, you know, part of, you know, our, our core political process. I mean, this has been the problem in a series of Supreme Court decisions involving politicians from both parties who will get convicted in bribery schemes, on, you know, often on theories of honest services fraud. And the Supreme Court basically keeps saying, no, these laws are too vague, and it's too difficult to distinguish this activity from legitimate political activity. And so the, whatever recourse you have here, it can't be to the criminal justice system. And so, I mean, I, I realize this is, not, this is not exactly the same as the McDonald case, but I mean, there are, the, it's, it's an actually hard problem to write laws that, that would effectively sweep up just this sort of activity without criminalizing political activity. That's right. And and to your point, Josh, yes, there's this line of Supreme Court cases that you can't use the mail and wire fraud laws to prosecute kind of corruption that doesn't involve, you know, bribery or taking money or things like that. That's not what the law is designed to do. And the Supreme Court has declined to extend it. But there aren't even laws that are arguably fitting uh, influence schemes where, you know, right. hey, my dad is the president type stuff. Um, there, there aren't even laws that arguably cover that. And it would be difficult to draft one uh, that does cover it. Finally, on Hunter Biden, uh, this diversion for the for the gun crime, 
uh, for a couple of years, he presumably he will have to stay sober during that period to meet the diversion program requirements? I expect he will. It'll be interesting to see what terms they put him on. They may put him on something that is similar to probation. And sometimes they have probation officers supervise diversion, and that could even mean he has something like drug tests or uh, things like that, conceivably. We'll have to see exactly what the terms of the plea agreement are. But yeah, I mean, obviously, he's not going to be able to get arrested. Uh, he's going to have to avoid, you know, issuing uh, videos of him cavorting with crack and hookers and stuff like that. And so uh, there are going to be some limits on him. And, and what will happen if he fails at that? If he fails at that, then the charge stands and he can be prosecuted under it. I mean, that's sort of a weird outcome, right? What is the policy objective here? The policy objective is to get to be sober. And then if you fail at that objective, then you're going to charge him with this gun crime that you almost never prosecute anybody for. It, f- it feels like a weird use of the criminal justice system. I agree. And, and one element we haven't talked about here, Josh, is that it is at least open to question whether this law is still constitutional uh, under the law as now determined by the Supreme Court. So The, you know, the gun law. Exactly. So uh, the Supreme Court last year famously issued this decision kind of with a new methodology for approaching whether or not laws uh, violate the Second Amendment. And part of that was, is this restriction something that was historically understood in the United States to be part of ordered liberty and acceptable limit on gun use? And uh, so, you know, I, I'm sure Ben Franklin, that guy was a snuff fiend and, and he had a flintlock, I'm pretty comfortable uh, saying. So it's entirely possible that the currently constituted Supreme Court would say that this section that says you can't have a gun if you use illegal drugs or an addict uh, is unconstitutional. So it is a little weird that they're making him even take diversion on it because they're already getting, you know, they're already charging him with something. The policy idea, I think, is that you've committed a crime, they're extenuating circumstances and that, you know, you were an addict at the time. So we're going to give you an opportunity to demonstrate that we don't need to use the system's resources against you because you can behave now. But I agree with you that the that theory seems a little shaky when you're talking about addiction and and, uh, that type of thing. But so then the I assume also if if there is, in fact, this recommendation for probation and if the judge accepts that recommendation, of course, the, the judge could sentence him to jail even if the even if prosecutors have recommended probation. But supposing that he gets put on probation for the tax crimes, I, I assume that, that that will also have as a condition of probation that he will have to stay sober. And then if he were to relapse, would they then send him to jail? Uh, yes. It, it, so it's likely, it, it's certain that the conditions will include not take any illegal drugs, not commit any crimes. It's likely that it will require him to maintain sobriety and even have occasional tests of some sort. And if he violates those terms of probation, then there would be a proceeding to revoke his probation and determine what the penalty could be. And that could be anywhere from sentencing him to some term of imprisonment to doing harsher terms of probation or or anything in between. Josh, you're right to call out that if it's true the government's going to recommend probation, that is only a recommendation. And actually, tax misdemeanors are one place where judges do weird things. I think that they, like many citizens, have this sense of outrage when someone else isn't paying their taxes. And so it's been known for them to kind of freak out and max people out on tax crimes. So Wesley Snipes, you know, the actor, uh, famously went to trial on tax evasion charges 
the the jury acquitted him on tax evasion, basically believing he got duped by these tax protester people and believe their crazy theories, uh, but but convicted him of failure to file. And even though that's something that would often get a very light sentence, the judge maxed him out to three years uh, on three misdemeanor counts. So judges will do weird things like that sometimes. So Hunter is definitely not out of the woods in terms of potential jail time. Let's leave it there for this week. You know where to find us on the internet at SeriousTrouble.show. Paying subscribers can join the comments uh, section under this episode and uh, respond to our discussion about Hunter and Judge Eileen Cannon and everyone else. Uh, And if they'd like to write to us privately, Ken, what's an email address they could use to reach us? Josh, if they would like to express sympathy uh, for the constant state of oppression uh, involved in the show, that would be RicoHotline at SeriousTrouble.show. Ken, I don't feel oppressed by you. (laughs) Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more soon. See you next time. <laughs>